Welcome to People More Interesting Than Me, the podcast, where I step back and let fascinating individuals take the spotlight. Join me as I sit down with incredible guests who captivate and inspire, showcasing their stories, experiences, and wisdom that make them truly extraordinary. Tune in for engaging conversations that'll leave you enlightened and entertained. I mean, at least I'm entertained. Our guest today, Rosie Menkes, had a thriving career in ad sales, working with some of the largest publishing houses and nonprofit organizations. From the outside, her life seemed picture perfect. A loving husband, two beautiful sons, and a successful career. In 2008, at the age of 44, Rosie was diagnosed with early stage lung cancer. In 2015, she faced an early breast cancer diagnosis, leading to a double mastectomy. In the, in the same year, Rosie had to move her mother to assisted living due to her dementia. The year reached its peak of heartbreak when her healthy 58-year-old brother tragically passed away in a horrific accident. Today, Rosie joins us to share her story, a story of resilience, self-discovery, and its transformative power of embracing one's authentic self. Enjoy. So at the, I, I saw something that you used to be involved in publishing. Well, what was that kind of like aspect? So I used to sell advertising space for magazines. That okay. was my profession. Um, and now I represent nonprofits um, and I bring corporate partners to them. Okay. For, um, be able to serve in one particular case. It's a, uh, a nonprofit that manufactures brand new coats and shoes for children in need. And I go and get the funder. Like, you know, the funder could be, you know, a, a big financial uh, company or FedEx or whatever. And they come in. And then the beauty of this nonprofit is that the employees of the, the company that I reached out to get to go to the school and actually gift the brand new coats and shoes to kids that really have never even owned a new coat. And they get to walk them, you know, they come down classroom by classroom and they get to walk them to the station. They get to pick out the color they want. They size them in it. They make them like this. They make they put their arms over their head. And then they go and, and fill in their name in the back of the coat. And they get, and the kids go, we get to keep this. And then they go over to a banner and sign their names if they're able to, if they're old enough to sign their own name for a thank you banner. So that's what I do in my regular day-to-day -day now. But I also, because of, as you shared, the two cancers and, and the journey that I went through, I actually decided to become a, a life coach and a speaker. And then I go on podcasts to share my story as well. So I feel like if my higher power kept me along and, and allowed me to find two cancers in the early stages, then there has to be something I do with it. And by sharing my story and telling how I went through this very difficult journey, and how I came out of it, I feel that that could help people. And that's okay. what. So we're going to talk about all that too. I just want to dig into the part. Like I, I, I love that idea, like making the shirts or making the coats and stuff like that. Cause I've never heard of such like a, uh, I don't want to use the word selfish, but it's like, usually when you're donating something, you don't really get to, you don't usually get to see the outcome, you know, like when you donate to, you know, like overseas or you donate even to your, your shelter, you don't usually get to see something like that. And I feel like that is such a better incentive to people nowadays to actually see like the kids getting 
like yeah. their coats and the hats and like that. And it seems like an easy, like, like an easy win to do yeah. that. that. It's, it's the, the employee's engagement component of our uh, partnerships are like, you get to live the impact. You don't just stuff the backpack with, with stuff and send it off. Yeah. You yeah, actually yeah. Make a difference in the kids' lives. And we had a survey recently that said 96% of employees that have been to an operation warm event come back. They want to do more because they're so excited. Well, it's called operation warm is a nonprofit I represent. No, that's great. And I mean, do you like when you, obviously you were the, the one that helps pitch this to the new companies like do you just use i mean i would use a montage obviously of that like three seconds when you open the door to like like when you're sizing the kids and exactly what you said like i get to keep this mm -hmm. like do you is that yeah. kind of we what you use like a, like a yeah. two minute that's perfect we I do mean, that on our calls it's amazing like you could see it we had a quote with um a financial company um a hedge fund in boston today and they were like jumping out of their skin. And it just turns out that this next week, person that I work with and another colleague are going to Boston for a Bain Capital event. And we invited the, the two prospects that we were speaking to today, come, come to the event and they're coming. And we know that once they come, we got them. When they come in, they just fall in love with it. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's funny how much the simpler you make things. For, I mean, you could just make so many arguments for this like amazon you know why amazon became so big is because people are, are lazy if you can order something and it gets there or it gets there when you wake up they'll do it if they can see direct charity like that or even be so close to it like why not do that yeah and i mean you look at all these other larger organizations you know the ones who make $3 million donations. And then they turn around to their customers and say, Hey, would you make like to make a donation? Although those donations are going directly to them mm -hmm. when they had already done it, like a tax write-off for $2 million. Yeah. Whereas this is completely different. This is actually, and I, I would assume that a lot of the companies that you work with too are local or close to the schools that are um, providing that. So what they do is they pick like, schools in there where they have locations in the, this particular one they had locations in boston la and uh, detroit and one other city and those are all high needs needs areas you know those are areas where there's huge homelessness and and high needs and poverty with with the children within children and with inflation the way it is now we are not only making a difference in the life of kids but we're alleviating a financial um um restraint for parents, because with the cost of living today and all the things they have to do, if they don't have to buy a coat or, you know, in the case of kids, they grow out of their shoes two to three times a year. If they get a brand new pair of shoes from Operation Warm, it's alleviating a financial burden for them. No, that's great. And just thinking of your background, which we'll dig into after this, but do you feel like the adversity that you've, um, I guess, been through has kind of pushed you? to do something selfless rather than doing something like yeah um anything you had previously done yeah i mean i was you know it's funny because i was in ad sales for magazines back when we had lots of magazines in the world but then when i was deciding to re-enter the workforce i said you know what i i don't really want to do advertising sales i'd rather i was introduced to some of that that represented nonprofits, and i just felt that that was a better place for me to be 
because I felt it would be based on having had lung cancer in 2008. And at that time, I didn't even know that I was going to have a breast cancer journey as well. I just felt that it was a better place for me to serve. And that's another reason why I decided to be the life coach that I am and speaking and is to, to help others. Let me, let me just dig into that just because I'm trying to gain your perspective. Cause I've never, I mean, I haven't been in that exact spot before, but do you feel like you wanted to give back something more because you wanted to make more of your life or is it something like that or? It just, it just feels more fulfilling to be in a position that where we can, I can help find the people that can help the people that are in need mm-hmm. and I can help and I can help them to facilitate that. So I'm still doing similar thing. I'm still going out to secure funding, but instead of doing it for a corporation for profit, I'm doing it for a nonprofit. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I, I, I totally understand that just because when I when I go to work, I mean, I think I can't really talk about my job because of, you know, like NDAs and stuff like that. But I feel like I at least have a purpose. But when I see other people at jobs who it's more of a monetarily driven job or um, I don't know, I feel like you can group people into two groups. One, they're living for the weekend or two, they're actually working at their job like they have some type of purpose or some driver they at least think they have drive yeah um and then i feel like another big thing behind that is actual promoting the overall like well-being of humankind mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel like that gets lost a lot what was it like obviously it's it's horrific to even hear that you have cancer and it obviously it's it's gotten better in the last like 10, 15, 20 years because 20 years, not, not 20 years ago. Yeah. We'll say 20 years ago, 20 to 25 or like when you heard someone had cancer, it was like, like it was usually a a death sentence. Whereas today, um, as long, usually when people find out early, there's some stuff you can do for it or stuff you Mm -hmm. can take, but you were told twice that you had two separate kinds of cancer. What was it like that second time? Because you had already been through it and it was a different cancer, correct? Yes, absolutely. It was was the first time I had cancer, um, I was diagnosed with a stage 1A lung cancer. And I didn't know that when I went in for surgery that that they were finding cancer. They just saw a nodule and they thought, we need to investigate this. But when I woke up, I had one incision that was like this small, that was like, let's say five inches small, that was supposed to be at the laparoscopic surgery. And then I had a 12 inch scar under it because when they went in, they saw more than they thought, but it was an early stage cancer, thankfully. So there was, um, you know, they were able to get it all, it hadn't spread to any other areas. But I will say that was a very difficult surgical journey because when you have lung cancer, you have to have, your ribs have to be spreading cracked. And um, it was the first time in my entire life, even with childbirth, that I was completely dependent on other people because I couldn't care for myself, um, which was tough. But I will say that breast cancer, in my experience, is way more personal because when you get out of the shower, you don't see your lungs. But when you get out of the shower and you don't have breasts, you see that. And it was very, very difficult for me to accept that. Um, and other people might have a different opinion, but um, 
you know, then they do the saline fills and then you swap out what they call the expanders that expand your skin and you, they put in implants. And the thing with that was I was a mess when I found out about that. It just was, as I said before, it was very personal and I, I just couldn't wrap myself around it. But over time, I was able to then get, and I'm not sure if it's too personal for your audience, but I was able to get nipple tattoos and I felt more complete. And that was that was uh, something that I, it, it, it took time, but I don't feel that I identify as a two-time cancer survivor. I, I feel like my struggles don't define me. They, they actually have strengthened me. You know, I, I feel that now after a very, you know, significant journey, and I could share, you know, what happened to me during that one period of time in my life. And with the things that I did in order to move from adversity to emotional wellness and healing took time, but now I walk out of my house and I'm a strong woman who's, you know, has a lot of scars and had a lot of curveballs happen in her life, but you know, I'm better for it. Yeah, that's what I usually notice. Either those big moments, especially if you get a couple in a row, either it breaks the person and they usually just slowly, you know, tunnel off, kind of give up, or it makes them, you know, like 10 times stronger. Mm -hmm. And just as you've done, you've kind of not just helping yourself out, you help other people out because you have that much. Let's just say your perspective has changed a lot better and you're stronger to take on more. And help mm -hmm. other people which yeah it's which, it's true which is which is obviously i'm just like counterintuitive that you would think like hey i've gone through all this stuff i don't need to i don't need to help anybody out if that makes sense just looking at it on paper but the way you feel about it that's mm -hmm. awesome so how would you say that you got um your life coach now how did you get from or how did you get into that role that you're in today for that. So the thing with me is that um, I felt that it was important for me to serve and to help others. And I don't do as much life coaching today. I do more speaking and podcasts to share my story, but I was so afraid back then when I found out that I had um, the breast cancer and, and, you know, to be quite transparent, there were nights that I rocked back and forth in my bed saying, I don't know if I could do this, you know? But then I thought, okay, now I'm past this journey and there's somebody that's really afraid that's just entering into it. What can I do to help that person? Because, you know, the, the, the questions for the doctors are the questions for the doctors, but the personal ones, you know, those are the ones I want to be there for them. And, and when I do life coach for women, which usually I try to stay in that space, the breast cancer space. The real reward is when they say, I was so fearful before I met you, and now I feel like I can do this. And that's where the real reward comes because like, I, I didn't really have that. I had a couple of people that talked to me, but I can really dig in deep. Like what's, what's the fear of, what's the question you have? What's, and, and, and I want to do that because I didn't have it. So I want to do it for others. How would you say your, I guess your perspective had changed to get you to where you're at now, like on a giving back type? I yeah. Guess. 
So I just want to share that, like, so I had gone through this very significantly difficult year. My mom from 2000, September 2015 to 16, uh, September of that year, my mom had to be transitioned into an assisted living facility due to the progression of her dementia. And she was very fearful and she didn't want to leave the only life she knew, which was living independently in Brooklyn, New York, and moving to New Jersey near us around the same time. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So if you can imagine, I'm going through multiple biopsies, lumpectomies, uh, ultimately a double mastectomy and reconstructive surgery. And my mom's calling me up 20 times in the middle of the night because of a dementia saying, get me out of here. I want to go home. And just when things were settling down, I'm seriously settling down. My 58-year-old healthy brother died in a horrific, completely avoidable accident. He was very passionate about uh, local theater and he was on the stage with his castmates. And somebody said, can you help me move this table off of the stage? So imagine if like, you're walking forward to the table and I'm walking backwards. My brother walked off of a three and a half foot stage, hit his head on the cement and was rendered brain dead immediately and then was taken with life support thereafter. And after that, that was the three things that happened. I fell apart. Like I stopped eating. I stopped speaking. I wrote a list of 12 things I would miss if I died. But I learned, what I learned is that none, one of us in this world gets to script our life path and not one of us gets to choose the body we're born into. But deep down, I didn't want to be in this hole that I spiraled into. I wanted to figure out how to move from adversity to emotional wellness and healing and actually finding joy in every day. And what I found that is that I always used to think big picture, you know, like, oh, if I could just do this one thing, it'll be great. Oh, if I could do this other thing, it'd be great. But I found that it wasn't going to be one big thing. It was going to be a series of small grassroots kind of things that were going to create this emotional wellness and healing. You know, here, sometimes you see something that'll say, uh, like a magazine, top 10 things to do when you're in trauma or, you know, fancy medical journal, somebody will quote something from it. But this was going to be foundation building. This is like from the ground up. And I can share with you some of the, some of those things that I, I did um, and how, again, it wasn't, it's not just one big thing. It's a series of foundation building, you know, grassroots things that helped me to, to heal. And hopefully I can, you know, share that with, with your audience as well. No, no, that would be great. And I, I think I saw some things about kind of bringing back self-care when trying to balance like all this stuff. Can you kind of go into that? Yeah. So, I mean, so for self-care, a um, couple of things. I happened to, uh, when I was going through all this, somebody said to me, you know, you should meditate. I'm like, meditate? I have like a marching band going on in my head at all times. There's just no way. But I started with a, a guided app. I started with Headspace. And then I've since I've since switched because I um, now do EFT tapping, which is emotional freedom technique, with uh, somebody named Nick Ortner. And I can say now it's uh, pretty much about eight years. I'm up to about eighteen thousand minutes meditating, and it's completely been a game changer. But the bigger thing was when I found mindfulness, because I always spent so much time worrying and obsessing about past things that I've done or plotting and planning future ones. When I started the practice of staying where my feet are planted, because my mantra is, I don't want to miss the beautiful gift of now, that was game changing for me. And I use, sometimes you run amok. I mean, we all do, right? So when I do, I use the, an acronym, it's called STOP. 
It's stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. And I'll ask myself, is this thought really serving me? And is it true? And what do I really need in this moment? And chances are what I really need is to stay where I am and not go elsewhere. But in terms of getting back to um, self-care, you know, self-care can be anything from a facial scrub or, or, you know, sitting on your deck and reading your book with the sun, acknowledging the sun on your face. But a form of self-care that I didn't know that I actually was capable of doing and took me a while was if I went to visit my mom and she was, you know, repeating, I want to go home, I want to go home. Self-care was standing up and saying, mom, I just received an email from work and I need to leave and leaving. And another form of self-care was if the phone rang at night and I didn't feel strong enough to pick it up, that I could hand it to my husband or my children, if my two sons, if they happen to be home. And a friend of mine called me recently crying because she's going through the same thing that I was going through with her, both of her parents. And she called me crying saying, is it okay not to answer the phone? And I said, yes, it is. I said, because they're not the same parents that they were, that, that you knew. They're different now. And that, and you need to take care of you because if you fall apart, you're not, you, you won't be any good to them. So those are just some of the self-care things that I incorporated in my life. I have a few more I can share with you as well. So just to talk on the the STOP acronym, how do you, and I feel like I, I fall into this trap a lot, especially with, I, I wouldn't say raising my kids, I would say more of an issue at work. How do you see yourself and recognize that you have to do that? I feel like in the heat of the moment, feeling angry, feeling jealous, feeling like all these different emotions are so powerful. How do you kind of, leave your body and realize that you've got to kind of like realign yourself or reset to a point where, you know, you've got to evaluate and come back. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you've, I, for me, I feel it in my body. I feel it. I feel it immediately in my shoulders. I feel it in my jawline. And then I realize that I have just now wasted and taking up space in my head with things that right now are not serving me. So that's when I have to come back. And sometimes what I need to do is sometimes I need to journal it out too. I need to sit, you know, if I happen to be in a place that I can and journal out why, what is this about and why am I doing this? And why am I, you know, putting myself into this space? And that is very helpful. I always tell um, people, you know, I, I was adverse to it for a while, you know, what needs to write or write and journal, but sometimes it's it's really good to do that because especially if you're going through something, you know, whether it be a, a cancer journey or some sort of uh, depression or whatever it is, and, and you might be able to like start journaling now and then take a look at it six months, a year from now and see how far you've come, hopefully, hopefully you've come further um, because of some of the, the healing that's happened for you. So I find that those those things, and I will also do the EFT tapping, um, as I shared before, the emotional freedom technique. They have different ones, and I don't want to start to sound like a commercial, but they have different ones for different you know things. So if I feel nervous, tension, and stress, I'll do that one. Or if I just feel like I want to create a happy day, I'll do that one. So I'll do them to help me to get back to where I want to be and, and to stay in the present moment. And because again, the mantra is, I don't want to miss the beautiful gift of now because that's what's here, right? Tomorrow's not promised. Yesterday's past. We're here, right here in, in this, in this moment right now. Right. Yeah. So diving into 
your your parent with dementia how do you like i've never my parents i mean they're they're getting up into that age how do you i guess where do you even begin with that dealing with that on an emotional level seeing someone who raised you basically go in reverse where they're losing their memories and basically not basically being a not just a threat to themselves but being a threat to people around them like how do you how it's just so hard to kind of like relabel that person as that yeah i mean honestly um we started early on with her becoming forgetful and then it progressed to the point where we realized that she wasn't eating she wasn't making meals for herself she was like eating cookies for dinner and then we started to fear that she was still driving and was she a threat to others or was she maybe would forget how to get home. So I, my mother was like my best friend and I had to make some pretty tough choices. I had to take her to a neurologist and have him give her a cognitive test, which I knew she would fail. And then say that we need to take your license away. And she was a very strong-willed independent woman. And she was very upset about that. And in general, it evolved getting worse to the point where we had a companion come in, then we just just to help out here and there. And then we had a live-in come in. But then when her care needs were like way, way up here and our ability was down here, especially again, I'm at that same time, I'm going through this whole breast cancer journey. That's when we made the decision to transition her to assisted living close to me. But the real thing that's hard to um, hard to swallow is that you become the parent and you become the child, you know, and and it's a it's a whole role reversal then, and that's the hard part. And I think that's the hard part for for most people is that transition from that role as your mom or your dad, and the relationship that you had with them, and to see it slip away. And and my mom just passed in 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 March of this year. And she, um, there were times where she would say things that, I mean, it was like somebody punched me in my throat. She, one day she said to me, um, I'm not sure if you're my daughter. And that, oh man, that hurts, really hurts, you know, knowing that she, I mean, my mom is an Italian, you know, first generation American. Um, and like her family's everything to her. The same as my family is everything. I'm sure you too. That she that she didn't know that I was her daughter. That those are hard things. Those are ones where you go in the car and you cry afterwards for a while, you know. So obviously, I have not experienced this, but I, I've heard many stories and stuff like that, and it just seems so mirror and reflexive. Like obviously, your parents raise you until you're 18, and even further on, they're always there. They're kind of like, you know, that that place you can always come come to when. You know, like you're at your worst, you need somewhere to sleep. They're always there. Mm-hmm. But what I see is like the exact opposite of on the reflexive, like, like you were taking care of your mom. Um, she wasn't all she needed a couch. Well, not a metaphorical couch. to Well, yeah, a metaphorical couch to sleep on. But she she needed that help. And basically, you were being the parent at the mm-hmm. other half. You were kind of not paying it forward, but doing what she did for you. She raised you. She was putting it like all the work in, you were putting all the work in 
at the end of her life, whereas she was giving it all to you in the beginning. Yeah. And it's it's just crazy how, I mean, this is going to sound stupid, but the circle of life where basically she's she's cashing all the checks that she put in raising you. Yeah. I, I'll give you a, a you know, a diff, two different periods in my life with my mom. In 2008, when I was diagnosed with lung cancer, you know, I had a pretty, I had a young family. My mom dropped everything in her life and came rushing to New Jersey to take care of my young family, to cook for me, to help me with, you know, the wound care and stuff, you know, because my husband was, was here, of course, but he worked in New York City at the time. 2016, I'm dying, well, yeah, 2015, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. I have the two major surgeries in 2016. I didn't tell her anything about it. I didn't tell her anything because with, first of all, she has dementia and she's, you know, how can I explain it? She repeats herself every, every 30 seconds. If she asked about something like that and I had to tell her, it would be like, I, I was shocking her every 30 seconds that she asked. Right. So I don't want to do that to her. And she's not able, she's not well enough to help me. And, and I want to protect her from knowing that her youngest child had cancer twice. Like, I don't want to do that to her. So that's the difference in, you know, mom is there, right there next to me in 2008. But by 16, I'm not going to let her know this. This is something she doesn't need to, to suffer over. Yeah. And, and I feel like, I mean, obviously you went through all that stuff, but I've, feel like the meditation all that stuff you got all that i guess i i wouldn't say uh technique techniques and uh practice that you learned do you feel like if something else ever happened like that again it would be obviously it's not going to be a, a fun process but it'd be something that you could get through right i think that the things i learned you know like in terms of how to like do those things but also i incorporated other things other so when you're throwing these curveballs right you, you me i've thrown a, a lot in one year do i choose to stay in that hole that i've spiraled into or do i look at the gifts that were right in front of me that i probably never even saw but they were right there and latch on to them to heal so one of those was is spirituality so I have a friend, her name is Marianne, and she passed away almost 20 years ago. To, next month will be 20 years ago. But before she left this earth, she said to us, I'm going to come back to you in, with these signs. And we call them winks from beyond. So one of the ways she would come to us would be if a glass broke at a gathering. That was her telling us that she was with us. Or if we saw dragonflies or sunflowers, either the real ones or maybe in somebody's jewelry or a tattoo or, or photos. And the third is through music. So like if songs that she loved came on the radio, that was her way that she was telling us that she was with us. So one simple example of, of one of those, that gift was that it was right after my brother Paul died and I was in a bad way. And I decided sometimes it cheers me up to go to my favorite Italian market because I'm Italian. So I'm made my selections, I'm in line waiting. And the song on the radio is Drops of Jupiter by Train. And no one in the store heard that song except me. But that's okay because I was the intended recipient for the song. I love that and, song, by yeah. the way. But an even, I love that song too. But an even more significant story is that besides, besides not sharing with my mom that I had breast cancer, when my brother Carl died, 
for the same reasons we didn't tell her that he passed because she couldn't put time together anymore. She couldn't tell if she hadn't heard from him a week, a month, six months. She just didn't have that ability. And again, how's Carl? Oh, Carl died. She, it would be the shock would be every, all the time because she would ask it. And it, why put that her through that? So my brother passed and we had um, church service and memorial service back at our house. And the next day I was just like really, really in a bad way. And I said, I'll, you know, I'll go visit her, but we'll make it light. I'll, I'll look at, I'll show her pictures of people on Facebook, friends and families. And my mom looked at me and she said, I know something's wrong and you're not telling me. And even with dementia, she could tell that there was something. And I just looked at her and I said, no, mom, nothing's wrong. I just got an email from work. Again, the self-care I was telling you about before and I need to go. And I sat in my car for about five or so minutes and I cried. And then when I was able to like compose myself to drive, I hit the ignition button and the song on the radio was Let It Be. And that was one of Marianne's songs. And she was telling me, you made the decision to not tell her that Paul passed away. You did it to protect her. You did it for the right reasons. Now let it be. And that's the first time I got through this story without choking up on it. <laughs> Usually I get pretty emotional with that one. But all the getting back to the spirituality and the and these gifts, you know, all through this particular journey, the, the very significant year that I had and, and thereafter, my friend Marion has been sitting on my shoulder, letting me know that she's there and that I'm not alone and she's there for me. So that's, you know, one of the gifts that I I, I had gotten from that. But I also started this practice of um, acts of kindness. Like you do acts of kindness for people and, you know, they're so appreciative and you get back tenfold. But again, I mentioned before that I journal. So I started back then taking out my journal in the morning and saying, writing in the journal, today I will be kind to myself by doing blank. And then I fill it in. And it could be anything from, you know, a nice little facial scrub or, um, you know, uh, taking a, a, a bath in the, you know, a nice uh, scented uh, uh, soaps. But by doing that, I can assure that every single day of my life that I will have something joyful. And that's a practice that I've done for the last eight years. And it's really been, you know, an, a nice way to do things. But getting back to the foundation building, like it, it's, it's like you have to start with, you know, like I practice gratitude and I have for a long time. I have this bracelet. I have it has four beads on it. And every day I acknowledge four blessings in my life. But back then I had to define what happy was. Like, what is happy? I'm not happy. I'm I'm in such a bad place. So I decided one day to write down five things that make me happy in my journal. And I'm looking at a blank page because I'm not happy. And I say things because people in my life made me happy, but things, you know. So I decided to write a thing, a list of five things that could make me happy. And I came up with this like basic list. And it was like very simple. It was like sitting on the couch with the fireplace on with a dog snuggled next to me or lighting three scented candles, turning the lights out and watching them glimmer, um, taking a walk, even if it's around the block, because I was recovering from major surgery. So just walking around the block was a big deal or savoring my morning beverage, really enjoying it or getting watching a sunrise or sunset. And I'm like, okay. This is a nice list, but it's not a list of things that make me happy. So I turned them into affirmations in order to be able to really, really like say them over and over until which point I could integrate them one by one into my life. But another thing that I did was I I, I 
took a look at things that I gave up during that awful year. Because you tend, when you go into trauma, you tend to give up things. And one of the things I gave up is that I stopped turning on the radio because I was mad. I couldn't fathom like listening to a song, singing along or connecting with lyrics. But music is so important to me that I mourn the fact that I, I gave it up at a time I really needed it. So I started to integrate music back, starting with, you know, songs from like when life was simple in your teenage years, like Billy Joel or Jim Croce or um, then fun songs like September by Earth, Wind and Fire. Like everybody jumps up to dance to that one and dance. Then I go to a party. Right. But then I went to the ones that I said where music is important to me, that when the lyrics actually speak to me, like Let It Be or Calling All Angels. Now, since that time, every single day has music in my life. I and mean, everybody's different. My music time is when I'm putting makeup on or in the morning or when I'm cooking. And I always sing to it. Sometimes I dance, but music is like another one of those things that I incorporated back into my life and, um, and another one of the gifts. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds great. And I feel like I need to do that more often, but I never think, Oh, I should, you know, incorporate music into like doing stuff around the house. I've always wanted to like have the, and, and we do play music every once in a while, but it's not like something we do just because there's so much chaos going on, mm-hmm. like throwing music in, which, which looking at it now, it would probably be kind of soothing if we wanted to tone down the playing or even um, if there was a tantrum, maybe soothe out the tantrum, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. But yeah, music is such a soothing or freeing quality sometimes that it's I mean magical I would say um to say it lightly um so I think we've gotten to our last question what is something that your parents did that uh you you tried to pass on to your kids and what is something that you tried to do differently or new that they um wouldn't have done so the thing that I, I like to share about my mom is that being of the Italian culture, um, she taught me that when somebody in the family sits down to have a meal, you stop and you sit with them because it's important to be with the person when they're eating and also to um, be with them when they're enjoying food, which is very important in Italian culture. So I've taught that to my children as well, and I've done that too. I mean, there's certain days, of course, you have conference calls or whatever, but if somebody sits down and my son, he comes to them, come home. They work. They both live in New York City. It's funny how the world and I, I started in Brooklyn, moved to New Jersey, and then they moved, moved back to New York. But um, when they're here and they're working, they, they'll, call, they'll call upstairs and say, hey, mom um, and dad, I'm, I'm going to eat lunch now. You want to come down and sit with me? Even if I'm not eating, I'm going to come down and sit if I can. But the thing that I, I don't do is, uh, again, my parents were um, first-generation American, and neither of them were able to graduate high school. Um, actually, three of my siblings dropped out of college, but my mom, I have to say, I'm fortunate that when I wanted to drop out of college because my friends, a lot of my friends just went to work, she said, no, you're going to finish what you started. And I thanked her on countless occasions. But based on their um you know unfortunate circumstance of not being able to graduate college they were my mom was a perfectionist like so she wanted me to like if i got a a 98 it was like why well, wasn't 100 and 
I didn't, I don't want to do that with my children. I wanted them to know that mistakes were okay or not even mistakes, you know, like you, if you got a 79, you got a 79, but you know, you know, you're smart. You know what you have to do. You have to dig in a little harder. So I have always tried to teach my kids that whatever you do, you own and you learn from it. And if you get in any sort of trouble too, it's not my job to fix it for you, right? I don't ha I'm not going to go to the other mother and talk to them. I can coach you, but it's up to you to make it right. And that's something that I actually see in my book too. But I, I have that, that is part of the um, things that my mom taught me uh, in terms of the sharing of the meal, but things that I have done differently. No, I like that. That's really nice. And, and I think I try to do that on a much micro level, at least now, because my kids are less than three years old. It's not, uh, it's not gentle parenting. It's uh, doing dangerous things carefully. It's like, if your kid wants to climb up on the couch and flip over it, I let them do it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they'll cry after, but maybe next time they'll know how to do just yeah. like letting it's kind of like parents did like in the 1910s 1920s they just let their kids go out and play and they were back you know like at sundown or they knew mm -hmm. when to be back they didn't know what their kids were doing between and that was kind of like me too but not to the certain degree that was like you know like mm -hmm. they go down to you know the my dad's from baltimore and he had six brothers and sisters and it they didn't know what their kids were doing, but they made it home for dinner like every day. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, that's how they learned. And they weren't going to learn if they were going to be like, you know, like stuck in a house all day watching TV or, you know, doing on an iPad or something like that, like they are today. Um, but, uh, but since you mentioned your book, can you tell me a little bit more about the book and where people could find it sure so my book is entitled find your joy and run with it and it's available on amazon and it basically talks about that year and but what it does is it it also shares the things that i've done in order to move from that adversity to emotional wellness it's a very inspirational story um people have said it's very relatable and i'm like you know some some person recently said your story is relatable I'm like what hey time out you're like 23 again thankfully you haven't had cancer and thankfully you don't have a, a mother with dementia or, or a, a sibling that passed how is this relatable and they say they they can relate to the emotions they can actually feel them as they're happening um there's also a lot of humor in it which you wouldn't think there is but just like the winks came when I needed them for my friend Marion that passed away so does the humor. Like it could be very, very deep, deep part of the book. And then something just laugh out loud, funny will happen. And that's another one of the things people say. Um, and so it's available on Amazon or on my website, which is my name, rosiemancus.net. Okay, that's perfect. Um, well, thank you very much for taking your time to talk about your story. That was oh, great. Thank you for having me. This is great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.